You are listening to the Eagle Podcast, episode number two. Today I'm in conversation with Toral Shah, my other human eagle. I'm excited about this one because we talk about food and how it plays crucial part in how we feel and how we heal. We humans consider cancer as almost the ultimate health crisis. We fear it to happen to us, but it's usually only during some sort of health crisis that we begin to evaluate and change our diet and lifestyle habits to bring back health, when in fact we should start our self-care journey while still being healthy. We know that, but putting it into action, well, it's excuses, procrastination, no time, not the right time, you name it. So I brought Toral onto the show for a healthy kick into our butts to hopefully inspire that action in you. She knows firsthand what it means to have health crisis and what's the role of diet and nutrition in both living a healthy life as well as prevention of disease, including cancer. Toral is an evidence-based nutritional scientist and food consultant who also works with cancer patients to reduce the risk of reoccurrence. We recorded this conversation back in January in Toral's beautiful home in London, and I must tell, this girl not only becomes your best friend instantly, she really cares about you and your well-being, and she's also a wonderful host. Her home-baked cookies were absolutely divine. Hi Toral, welcome to the Eagle Podcast. So great to have you with me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. You have a great story, so why don't we unpack it a little bit? What led you to work with cancer patients and what help do you exactly provide them? So this story goes back a really long time. It goes back probably about 30 years. But when I was about 11 years old, I read, I was a precocious reader. And I read a novel about a surgeon who worked with cancer patients um, and his own child also had cancer. And I realized at that moment in time, I wanted to A, be a doctor and B, work with cancer. So that basically then informed all of my decision-making with my education. So going on to do my A-levels and then going on to medical school. Um, and then my own mother had breast cancer when I was doing my BSc at uh, UCL. And watching her go through breast cancer and all the ensuing treatment, the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy and you know, the surgery, which was very drastic in those days. This is back in 1999. I just thought, why are we not doing more with prevention? Why are we not doing more to help prevent reoccurrence? Because the statistics weren't brilliant at that time. They're way better now. Um, and this was a worldwide problem. Why are we not doing more with prevention? So I started to look at all the research papers to look at what kind of foods and lifestyle uh, made a difference to people who had cancer, what helped prevent it. And there weren't that many papers, there were a few. There was definitely lots of you know, studies happening at that time. And slowly as the years went on, there was a lot more research released. Um, so fast forward a couple of years, I decided not to do, continue with the clinical part of medicine and not to become an oncologist because I think you have to be emotionally very robust to do that. And I am very empathetic. And I find that very hard to just separate myself from the patient. So I had a break, worked in research for a while with Sark, Sark Oncogenes. And then I um, went and did a master's in nutritional medicine, specializing in cancer and diabetes. So that led the way for me to start working people. And by then, a lot of good research had been released. So it gave me a really good evidence base to start looking at how can we do this? How can we help people? Um, and then I, while I was doing the master's at the very end, I was diagnosed myself with breast cancer at the age of 29. 
um, and had a mastectomy. Um, it was a very uh, low grade, so mainly a, a mixture of grade zero, which is DCS and, and stage one uh, breast cancer. Rather and we I had a mastectomy and we decided not to do chemotherapy because it would have increased my, uh, well, reduced my risk of reoccurrence that much. Same with radiotherapy. We did start tamoxifen, which is a hormone treatment because my cancer is incredibly um, based on hormones. So estrogen and progesterone help my cancer grow. Um, I didn't last very long on it. I was quite allergic to it. Um, and I realized that there's so many people who need help. So I wrote my thesis on what dietary and lifestyle changes can we make to help prevent the reoccurrence of breast cancer for my master's thesis. And that was really interesting, kind of looking at all the research papers, because there's been so much and so much more has been released since then. Wow. So it's literally fueled by your own experience. Yeah, feel by my own experience, but literally this is something I wanted to do for since I was 11. So it's not people think I only got interested in cancer when I had breast cancer, but actually it's well long, long, long before that. You know, I wouldn't have gone to medical school if I hadn't read that book. I wouldn't have suddenly been involved in looking at the research with dietary and lifestyle changes if it hadn't been for my mum. When my mum had breast cancer, you know, I was reading all these papers and trying to find her supplements and foods to eat all the time while she's having treatment and, and post-treatment. And um, bless her, she was very good at taking it all. <laughs> we'll definitely come back more about your own story and your mom's story. What I'm curious about right now is at what stage clients usually um, find you and how do they approach you? And, and can you describe what's like working with cancer patients or survivors? So I have a real mixture of patients. Some of those are people who are currently or have just been diagnosed uh, and then are coming up to having some sort of surgery or chemotherapy or radiotherapy or hormone treatment um, for the, those obviously the breast cancer and colon cancer ones um, but some people they've finished all their treatment it might have been a couple of months where they're trying to get back to normal but they realize it's actually hard to be normal you have almost a new sense of normal and you need to sort of settle into that um, and then I have other people who come to me because they've had family risk and so they want, they understand their genetic loading is not helping them. So they want to make changes to help avoid some of the cancer maybe other members of their family have had. So there's a real mixture of different stages. And how people find me is via, a lot of the time it's through personal recommendation, through friends um, of theirs or family members who've kind of interacted with me. They've been to a workshop for me or one of my talks mm -hmm. or read some of my sort of science posts, read about me in the newspaper. Um, I would say 80, 85% are personal recommendations who, about someone who's read about me or, or interacted with me in some way. Obviously some through social media and Facebook and things like that. Um, and some, I think just by Google, <laughs> you can never discount Google. Google's always there. So my website is theurbankitchen.co.uk. Sure. What sort of demographic typically approaches you? So I mainly work with patients or slightly, people who are slightly older. Um, I think that's partly because they're much more aware of the risk if they haven't had cancer. And obviously older people are more likely to have had cancer. Obviously there's plenty of young people have cancer, but I do work normally. I would say a real mixture of people, but most of my patients are between 35 and 60. I don't have very much of the much, much old ones. And there have been a few patients who have been in their 70s. But I think at that point, for them, it's about just quality of life. So maybe their family members have been in touch to find out some more information. I've got a, a nice free ebook that people can download from my website. And that's at least given them some sort of support. But 
primarily people between 35 to 60. Okay, and are they both genders, men and women? Men and women, but I would say that women probably take more responsibility for their health and they're much more likely to come and see them about nutrition and the dietary lifestyle changes. Men do come. They're often encouraged to come by maybe female family members or friends or you know partners and things like that. So it is a little bit different. Can we clarify a little bit what sort of um, cancers they, they are scared of having or they're having? At the so time when of, they approach you. Yeah, a lot of the people um, come for me come to me with some of the more common cancers and the genetic, more genetically based cancer. So people like breast cancer, because obviously that runs in families sometimes. Um, and you know, at the moment, you know, at least one in eight women will have breast cancer at some point in their lifestyle, lifetime. Um, colon cancer, because again, that's often in families. So their people might have seen their family members, or they may have had precancerous polyps already, or things like that. And then the rest are, uh, I think. A mixture. There's so many different types of cancer. There's over 200 different types of cancers. But I would say probably primarily those ones because there's also the most evidence of dietary and lifestyle changes that can be made to help, you know, prevent reoccurrence with those ones. Mm -hmm. Okay. So... And prostate cancer, obviously. But more men, obviously that's a male-only one. Uh, and normally it's their partners or their family members who encourage people to come. Oh, but they're quite resistant normally. Are they? Yes. <laughs> so when they when they come and you sit down, what sort of emotional or state they're usually in? I think it depends at what stage they're at. If it's somebody who's already been diagnosed with whatever type of cancer it is, um, if it's quite near to their actual point of diagnosis, they're probably quite overwhelmed and scared and anxious. So a lot of the time it's actually spent reassuring them. Mm -hmm that you know, this, what potentially could happen, how we can support them, what emotional support they might need. So it ends up being more, maybe not of a counselling session, but having been at a carer, having worked in the research field, having been a patient myself, um, and obviously gone to medical school to be an oncologist, I really feel like I've got a 360 approach to how I can understand how they might feel. Um, and so for me, that's very important. And just to, for them to hear that I've been through all of this stuff helps them. Absolutely. I mean, they can relate to you and they trust you more. Exactly. And hopefully I can answer some of their kind of questions that they're really anxious about, or at mm -hmm. least point them in the right direction. So I don't know everything, but I can certainly point them to other doctors that I know or other cancer specialists or yeah, other people mm -hmm. so that they, you know, to help them. When you say resistant, what are they resistant to? I think that people often um, underestimate how much responsibility they have for their own health. And they put it all onto the medical system. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we are responsible for our own health. So our GPs are fantastic in this country. And they're so overstretched. And they have such little time that they can only really work with and help the people who share some of the potential things that might be wrong with them or things they're concerned about. And, and then help them with those things. And then help them to get diagnosed with whatever is wrong with them. And I think people don't necessarily do that. And then you have to make the changes. You can know about all the changes, but if you don't make the changes, then your health isn't going to change. It's, you know, it's the definition of madness to have, expect a different result by doing the same things over and over. So I think that's where having somebody that you can be accountable to, who's going to encourage you, who's going to support you um, in making dietary and lifestyle changes, someone like me or a functional medicine practitioner or a GP or a lifestyle medicine practitioner, they can really help with all of those things. Although taking responsibility, how easy it sounds, it's, it's a hard one though. 
I've been there. I, it's very, very, very hard to take responsibility for yourself because you feel like you need to take the blame. And it's not. It's actually about looking, okay, well, this happened. I could do this or I could have done that. What am I going to do going forward? And I think that's pretty much all of modern life. We've become very used to just mm. blaming other people and other things. But yeah, sometimes things just happen. You know what? My breast cancer, yes, we have a breast cancer, uh, some sort of genetic element to loads of people in my family have had breast cancer. But I was really healthy. I was very lean, very slim, doing triathlons, never been a smoker, didn't drink that much, and I still had breast cancer. So there's obviously something in my environment and maybe uh, obviously the genetic element and potentially maybe there were some elements of stress or emotional things that I needed to deal with that I had breast cancer quite early on in my life. Or maybe it was just one of those things. Um, it was a non-aggressive type, so I was very lucky and it kind of gave me the impetus to look at these things a little bit more but I think people also have to then not beat themselves up about it taking responsibility doesn't mean blaming anyone or blaming yourself or beating yourself up it just means okay well this happened and this happened and I did this or I didn't do this okay what can I do going forward mm -hmm. so when clients then come to you uh, obviously they realize that your expertise is food yes so are they open to the idea do you need do they need a lot of convincing that food is going to make a change in their health so by the time people get to me, I think they've already understood that nutrition and diet and lifestyle changes can make a difference. Mm -hmm. The people who don't think that or just can't understand that don't come to me, to be really honest. Family members of theirs or friends of theirs may have come to me and try to ask me to speak to them. I always offer you know, a free 15 minute chat with every potential client so they can understand what it is I can do. And then I can't do miracles and I can't cure someone from cancer or heal them magically because that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. What I can do is help them to look at where they can take responsibility, encourage them, support them and look at what changes they can make that practical for their life. And it won't be changing everything. It'll be changing one or two things at a time and seeing how they get on for six weeks because it takes that long to embed it as a habit and then moving on to something else because you can't change everything. You can't suddenly become like, okay, I don't eat gluten, vegan, dairy-free, and that's not even appropriate for most people. Um, so I think that it's really useful when people are willing to start looking at themselves um, and start making the changes, but we also have to appreciate that Rome wasn't built in a day. It takes time. And also people need to enjoy their food. They need to enjoy their life. And if someone's really into, I don't know, going out every night, then we have to look at, okay, how can we help them with that? We have to work with people's likes and dislikes. If they really hate avocado or broccoli, we can't make them eat it, but we can encourage them to cook a different way. So someone wrote, wrote something really interesting. I think I read it in the paper recently, and I think Tim Spector shared it. It was about if everyone you know, would like to eat broccoli and learn to love it if they had otolenghi cook it and charring, have, add garlic to it and lemon zest. And, but if they say they've just boiled it, overboiled it, overcooked it, they're not going to ever like broccoli. So it was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, you know, people teaching people how to cook, teaching people how to make things more tasty. Because I think people also think cooking is difficult, takes time. So for me, it's a mixture of a, helping find out what change they need to make. B, what are the practical steps? What is practical for their particular lifestyle? We're all unique. We all have a you know, unique lifestyle. So are they going to be able to cook every day? No, maybe they need to batch cook things. Maybe they need to know which restaurants and 
you know, lunchtime places they can go to to pick something up that's you know on the healthier side, and also to understand that you know having a bit of cakes good is fine. You not need to like restrict everything. You having an odd glass of wine's fine too. Like don't get obsessed with it. I think it's about finding what's right for that person's lifestyle. Brilliant, I love that. Okay, Toral. Um, so having such a varied exposure to cancer in your family and your first-hand experience yourself that you've had with it, as well as having all the professional outlook on that subject, where do you feel the conversation about cancer should begin? So I think certainly in the Western world, and actually the rest of the world too, but particularly in the Western world where a lot of the studies are coming out and we have a real problem with this and we have a much more increasing risk and of, of any type of cancer, I think the thing is prevention. And I don't think we're looking at that. And that's not to say that there aren't doctors who don't want to look at prevention. Um, I just don't think our medical system has the resources or the time or space to necessarily look at lifestyle nutrition. We've got to remember that doctors don't get about five hours of nutrition training. I went to medical school and I had maybe five hours of nutrition training for the whole time. So we need to start bringing nutrition training into medical schools. We, and I know that um, the Doctor's Kitchen and Nutri Tank are doing some great work with that. Um, we also need to start equipping GPs who are already qualified with more lifestyle and nutrition um, training. And there's the British Association of, uh, British Society rather, of Lifestyle Medicine, who is actually trying to facilitate some of this training and had an amazing conference really talking about how lifestyle can make a huge impact. Um, and then really have all sorts of doctors working with trained nutritional professionals who are really have deep di dived into nutrition, whether it's cancer or diabetes or whatever field people specialize in, and getting their support because prevention is always more important than cure, I think. You know, if we can prevent things, is A gonna save money NHS has a limited amount of money. At the moment, statistically, we're spending, you know, 10% of our budget on diabetes. And more and more people are getting diabetes and they're getting more obese. And obesity is one of the biggest risks of cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you look at the World Cancer Research Fund statistics, you know, being overweight or being obese is one of the biggest risks. So it's really clear that you can stop people being obese and overweight if you arm them with the right knowledge, make it easy to eat the right foods, stop marketing loads of sugary rubbish and snacks on TVs and tubes and buses. So I think the mayor of London's doing a great job, mm -hmm. whatever people say, because we need to encourage people. And But we also have to make it like teach children how to cook. The problem is people don't know how to cook anymore. Um, I think Mark Hyman, who's quite big in functional medicine, he said that in the United States, only 8% you know, eight percent of the income is spent on food wow. and of which only a few people cook at home in europe you know there's a lot you know, 20 percent of our income is spent on food which is a lot you know Much or more than double mm -hmm. obviously and i would say that in the uk we probably um spend more on going out and ready-made foods than probably central europe which is really interesting because they have really good markets and really good produce um, but I think that's terrifying. And the amount of people that don't know how to cook, even the most basic of meals. And actually, cooking for yourself is way cheaper. Mm -hmm. And you can eat more seasonally, which means there's more nutrients in the food. It's tastier. And it's just so lovely to share food with people. I appreciate it takes time. So then I think we have to think about how to make it easy for people to cook. How to make it more time efficient. 
And I think all of those skills, we don't have any of those skills that are taught at school anymore. When I went to school, I, went to, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously older. We had you know, home economics. We had needlework, which is very boring, by the way. Um, we had some of these things. But I think we need to bring that back. And even budgeting, so people know, okay, well, if I buy this, I can make this. So even I buy an organic veg box once in a while. And actually, it's not expensive. It's actually really good quality. Odge box, they're a brilliant box, which is all the kind of things they can't sell in supermarkets, which is slightly funnily shaped. Mm -hmm. And you get this box, which is like 13.99, I think, for a medium box. And actually, that feeds like three people. And it's so, it's really good quality produce. And I think it's getting people to understand more about food and nutrition and the impact of their life. And I think there's so many different variables, elements to that, so. I, I hope I answered the question. <laughs> yes, no, I totally understand that food is literally on top of the pyramid when it comes to how do I prevent cancer? Is there anything else that we should yeah, so keep in mind? Obviously not smoking. Smoking is another really huge risk for mm -hmm. preventing cancer and you know, other diseases. Um, definitely alcohol too. And I think there's a really interesting mixed message going on with alcohol because with the Mediterranean diet and other studies, they show that having one glass of red wine or something is good for heart health and other kind of cancer. But actually any more than that is often increases the risk of having any type of cancer. And actually, some other studies have shown that having no alcohol is, is better and not drinking at all. So that's you know, another risk. I think we're, especially in the UK, we drink a lot of alcohol. Um, and not with our meals, we drink alone. And I think that's different to European drinking as well. If you look at the French paradox, where they mm -hmm. drink a lot of wine and eat loads of cheese, but they have less heart disease. I think it's because of the style of eating and drinking is very different. There's a lot more social around the family, around the table, whereas well, ours is kind of just out in the pub or out and about, you know? So I think it's interesting. It is interesting. So talking about alcohol, so obviously I am following a number of uh, people on social media, mm. the ones that are either going through cancer or are in remission. And um, I have to say it's interesting to observe, it's no judgment whatsoever, but a number of uh, high-end profiles, um, they sort of, um, tell very openly that they enjoy drinking alcohol because you know it's it's one of those things you know you never know how you're going to how long you're going to live and I want to have my life to the full including having big numbers of you know alcoholic intake. What do you think about that? Is there a, a risk or is it's understandable emotional justification? There is a huge risk in drinking a vast amount of alcohol, but at the same time, it's part of the pleasure of life. Having a really good glass of wine or a gin and tonic mm. or whatever you know, is your tipple, it's a very nice thing to do and it's very relaxing. But I think we need to look at the underlying things underneath that. Mm -hmm. If they're feeling very stressed and they reach for alcohol before anything else, what other emotional, psychological, mental support could we be providing these people? Right. What else could they be doing that could help them? Mm. So as much as people might feel find it really like boring or they might be resistant to it. You know, having a counselor, you know, when you've had mm. sort of cancer or therapist, um, doing, learning to do meditation, yoga, breath work and breathing techniques, um, just writing things down, journaling, all of those things, which sound a bit airy-fairy, but actually help you with stress. And also just reaching out and speaking to someone. And you know, and if you look at Dr. Chatterjee and he look at his new book, The Stress Solution, you really look at, it's all about connection and community and we all need to find other ways to reduce stress. So at the moment we're getting so much information. So does that mean we have a phone for you, dear? I don't know. So we have to look at what's underlying their need to drink. 
I'm not saying don't drink because mm -hmm. you, you know you shouldn't drink and da da da. Of course, it's healthier not to drink, but look at the reasons why you're drinking. And I think we were having this conversation in the gym this morning mm -hmm. about dry January and is that a good thing or not a good thing and things like that. And I said, well, for me, it doesn't make much difference because I don't drink that much, but I do drink because they've seen me. You know, we have you know, a glass of champagne when we have lunch, but um, I think it's about looking at what other things you can do. And I think that's where even just eating, like how often do we comfort eat? And I'm, you know, I've done it and I do it every now and then. And I think actually, well, what could I put in place to stop myself reaching for that chocolate or crisps unnecessarily when I really could just do with a hug and talking to someone? And I'm not saying that you should never eat chocolate or crisps. Please, please. I, I'm a huge fan of dark chocolate <laughs> and eat a bit of cake. But I think, again, like, where are we using it to numb our feelings rather than actually dealing with what's going on? Yeah. And I think as we've got more methods of communication, we're actually communicating less. And I think that's where we need that human connection a little bit more. I love it. I love it. So in, in terms of the alcohol, I definitely address whether alcohol is, is sort of stress release rather than I simply enjoy a social yeah. a moment. Um, moment. Yes. The other thing that we didn't talk about with um, reducing cancer risk is exercise. Exercise has really been shown and it doesn't matter what exercise it is. Yes, there's obviously definitely any um, in, you know, things, you know, we might want to do strength training. Strength training is great because it increases your muscle mass and your lean muscle tissue, which can particularly help you to lose weight if you're obese or overweight. It can also help to balance out your hormone structures. It releases brain-derived neurotropic factor, mm -hmm. which is so good for like your brain health and all sorts of things. Um, obviously, cardio health is great for your heart, helping it, and also just sometimes stress relief too, and when you're a run or whatever it is you like doing, dancing, or it doesn't have to be going to the gym and slogging out on the treadmill, because that's very boring for most people. But it's about finding the exercise that you like and doing 30 minutes where you're out of breath a day and walking more, just walking more. And one of the things that's quite interesting is that in the past, cancer patients were told not to re-exercise in treatment. Mm -hmm. And there's been some really interesting studies now out of Australia and other places where they're encouraging people to do some exercise and in fact, increase their exercise to help with their treatment. And I think that's really important. And from my own end, I had uh, breast cancer surgery uh, a couple of months ago and one of the conversations I, I had you know with the doctors are, when can I go back to you know the gym when can I start lifting and they weren't sure because doctors aren't actually trained in this so I am very lucky because I know lots of doctors through the functional medicine field and the lifestyle medicine and, and through Instagram and I kind of reached out to them I went to see a specialist in exercise physiology because I was like you know what I don't want to be off for more than two or three weeks I know I need to heal but then I want to start doing gently going back to doing my exercise and right. I think it's also about getting the right help. Um, so we do need people exercising. I think stress relief too. That's one of the other things that we haven't been able to measure that well. We haven't got studies, but there are definitely studies out there which look at meditation and breath work and things like that. And I think that if it helps to reduce stress, it helps to reduce inflammation in your body because it reduces the cortisol levels. That's always a good thing. So we need to look at all of those that's things. brilliant. I, I love exercising and actually talking about exercise in January, um, I've just joined the team of uh, the two uh, cancer uh, survivors or one of uh, the, you know, Bowel Babe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Deborah. Yeah, and, yeah, that'd be Deborah, yeah. <laughs> from, from their very famous podcast, uh, Big C, Little Me. Yeah, Little Me, yes. I love that podcast. Yes, yeah, so they just literally created a team for triathlon uh, 
London? No, London Triathlon Triathlon. January. Yeah. Yes. So they have a team going on now. Oh my so God, if you tell want them. Do, I'd love to. Yeah. Yes. So. I should text Deborah and be like, hey, can I be on your team? <laughs> And I'm amazing. Well, not running. I'm not, can't be, I'm not a very good runner. There is a campaign you can check it online. So I've just joined, I mean, yesterday. Brilliant. So it's 15 kilometers you've, we've got to do either running or cycling or, or, walking, or walking across the whole January. It's no pressure. I could do that in a day. So I brilliant. did 12.8 kilometers <laughs> yesterday. So yeah, absolutely. Check you out. <laughs> good point. Definitely. Exercise is on top of. of and it just makes you feel good. And it, I think it's about finding the right type of exercise for mm-hmm. you. So for me... I love exercise anyway, but sometimes I have to force myself. And I think for me, what's made a difference is finding a gym that's walking distance, but I do a sort of a small group personal training. And I found this crew of amazing women that I train with. Mm. So we're pretty much message each other each evening to see who's going the next day and what time. So we can try and coordinate. And at least, that means that at least there's two of us at any session. And I, for me, that accountability has made a huge difference. And I think having a training partner makes a difference with whatever you do. It's like having a dance partner. And I think that if you can find your kind of crew, mm-hmm. it makes a huge difference. And then you will more likely to do it. So people, someone asked me the other day, oh, how many times do you exercise? I was like, at least four or five times a week because I, I don't want to let my ladies down. And I also really have fun. We, you know, we have a good chat. And for me, I work for myself. It's a really important social contact. And we've created a beautiful community and they're incredibly supportive. So after surgery... You know, they came around and did bits and pieces for me. They came around and cooked a brunch, they did some errands. You know, like someone took away sheets to the laundry. It was just oh. phenomenal. And that was all from the gym. That's amazing. Sort yeah. of community you created. Community is so important. so important. Yeah. And if you look at all the blue zones where they have way less cancer than other areas of the world, mm-hmm. they're five areas. Um, so, you know, Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, Loma Linda in California, um, there's island in Greece, Ikara, and uh, Okinawa in Japan, and in uh, Sardinia. They, they just have a really strong community, and that helps to reduce stress. And they have way less diseases in a whole, not just cancer. And I think that's really important. They all are walking everywhere all the time. They're eating lots of vegetables. They have also some sort of spiritual practice, because that can help. Absolutely. And I never used to have one. And now I'm like, oh, I've become a very different person now. But it, it, you know, I, don't even, I can't even explain why. But if it helps you to feel better about yourself and feel that you've got some connection out there with the world, then it's a good thing. I think it's healthy to have these uh, smaller communities outside of your family, outside of your home. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's why, if you think about the uh, success of things like CrossFit or you know, other sort of personal development things, it's because there's a community form. I think we have less community than we had before because people don't have extended families in the same way or live with them or, or have the same friendship groups because people travel a lot more and live in different countries and things. So, and people are just very busy. So I think it's great when you can see some people regularly doing something that you all love, whether it's cross-stitch or dancing or jumping up and down, you know, because you like trampolining or whatever it might be, cooking together, so important. Definitely. I remember the time when when I was diagnosed, um, I, I actually sort of um, removed myself from communities. That was not a healthy thing I realize now that I've done. But probably uh, months after that, I realized, you know what? 
I'm missing a very important element. So literally, I, I started dancing and doing other things. And it's just, it, it's life changing because once you're opening up like to people and you're okay to be vulnerable, not to be a victim, like, okay, look at me, I'm just not good. But when you are actually infusing yourself with that good energy, it's just, it transforms the way you heal, the way you go through that. Absolutely. Like today, I've had my first cardio session since I had my surgery. And it was great. All the ladies were there and they were all checking out. Are you okay? Mm. How are you doing? And like high-fiving. And they know you did it. Amazing. <laughs> and it was really great feeling. Um, and I feel really pleased that I kind of didn't want to go this morning. I was being really tired. I was like, oh. And I'm really glad because actually now I don't have that fear of going. Um, and I think community... It's just, it also makes you forget sometimes as well. You can have fun, you can have a laugh, and you don't have to think about your issues. Definitely. So okay. that's good. So what I'm also interested in is, do you, do you notice any behavior patterns or even food patterns in your cancer patients when you assess them first time? It's like, so everyone's I mean, there's a real mixture of different types of people. Some people are just already really healthy and they just need a few tweaks. Some people need a bit more help. Um, so I would often say that they're the common things come rather than patterns, they're common things. Mm -hmm. So one is so many people don't eat five portions of fruit and vegetables a day, which I find really interesting because we've been recommended that. But actually, if you look at all the research studies, we really should be eating seven to nine portions. And the only reason the government suggests five is because that's not been attainable. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, most women only eat an average of 4.1 and men eat a lot less than that. So nearer to three. Um, and that affects the amount of fiber intake. Again, the recommendation is 30 grams. Most people are only eating 18 grams, and that's because they're not eating enough uh, fruit and vegetables, but also whole grains as well. Especially in this low-carb uh, world that we've come into, people are, are really not eating whole grains, and that's really affecting our gut health, which brings me on to the next one, that a lot of people have issues with their gut health. They don't have maybe any... Uh, foods which we would consider prebiotic, which will help the good bacteria to grow. Um, they don't, also don't have enough fiber, which the gut bacteria love. So that's often a problem. Um, and that's something that we look at slowly, obviously, and like look at helping people to increase and improve their beneficial bacteria in their gut, which takes a little bit of time. Um, alcohol, because a lot of my patients probably have been drinking quite a lot of alcohol. So we look at how they can reduce it or change it. Sugar intake. I know that there isn't much of a link between sugar and cancer, but if you look at the people that eat more sugar, the types of food they're eating, um, obviously it means they're having more processed food and then there's less space for the fruit and vegetables. So I think that's really important. So those are probably the main things. Also water, people don't drink a lot of water sometimes. I and I just find that really interesting. And they don't have enough, people who do eat vegetables often don't eat enough of a variety. They eat the same seven, eight things all year round. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we live in, the world where the world is seasonal and there's seasonal vegetables all the time and yeah, those all have different nutrients. So it's just about really educating people about the, the benefits of eating a more diverse diet because it's really important for the gut health um, because there's tens of thousands of different types of gut bacteria and they all have their favorite food just as we all have our own favorite food. So th these are the kind of things we slowly start to look at with people. And then also things like some people don't eat regular meals. Um, they don't eat enough meals. Some people eat, you know, are snacking all the time rather than eating kind of a, a good kind of nutrient dense meal. So it's all of those things. Teach people don't cook. People don't know where to get the food from. 
And there's always the conversation about organic and non-organic. And I'm like, well, the most important thing is to get as much fruit and vegetables in and then we'll go on to the organic bit because that's the least of your worries right now, you know? Um, apart from obviously the dirty dozen vegetables and fruits. But that's, yeah, those are the main things. Which vegetables are usually overlooked? People don't like green vegetables. Huh. No. People don't like the... Although kale and broccoli have become much more fashionable in the last five years, I think that people are still a little bit reluctant, like Brussels sprouts, people hate them because they're so used to having these like overcooked, soggy, stinky Brussels sprouts. And I did a really nice recipe for... Well, I thought it was really nice, for the Royal Marsden, um, where I did a rainbow slaw with Brussels sprouts and Ooh. it was all kinds of crunchy vegetables and kept... We did cook the Brussels sprouts just to kind of make them... You know, get the bite out of them. But again, just cook them for a few minutes with some like spices just to give them a bit of flavour and then it all went into the slaw where a lot of things are raw and it I thought it was really crunchy and delicious and just gave people a whole new way of eating um, Brussels sprouts and that recipe is live on the Royal Marsden website um, at the moment so go and have a look, check it out yeah you've touched a little bit on gut and inflammation what exactly is the link to cancer is there a link so at the moment, we just don't know enough. We have not, they, they understood the gut or thought they understood the gut thousands of years ago. And then we kind of forgot about it for a bit. So it's only in the last 10 years ago that we've really started to understand the importance of gut health and the beneficial bacteria and maybe the bacteria which aren't as beneficial and understand the balance between them and what we need to do to help. The, the you know, beneficial bacteria create so many molecules that we need that we can't deal with ourselves. We don't have the enzymes or the structures or whatever. So they'll make vitamin K, they make so many of our messenger molecules, um, all sorts of things. And so one thing that's really interesting is there's a, a definitely a link between poor gut health and increased levels of inflammation. And if you look at lots of diseases and disease states, there is obviously increased inflammation in those in people who've had some of those diseases. Um, so the link between cancer, again, we don't understand, but we do understand that having a better gut health um, can help predispose you uh, to recovering more quickly from cancer or being less likely to have cancer or getting on you know, better with your treatment, things like that. Um, there are also some trials happening where we're looking at taking probiotics with all sorts of disease and stuff and whether it makes a difference. And all of this stuff's really new and really exciting. So there's some current studies which are taking place where they're giving probiotics with certain types of chemotherapy and immune therapies. And I think this is going to be a really exciting area of research and discovery over the next five to ten years. And I'd be really interested to see how we do that. But inflammation, we do need some sort of inflammation. Inflammation is important for wound healing, for example. We need to bring all the blood vessels and the, you know, the, the blood vessels, the blood cells to the, the, the point where you cut your finger or whatever it is and then they heal. So I think we need to also remember that it's not all bad, but we have to, being a, a steady step of inflammation all the time, we know is not good for us because that really affects a lot of our hormone systems, whether it's cortisol or insulin or some of our female hormone systems. And we're really starting to understand the link between all of those. And obviously, for someone who's had breast cancer, for example, having high levels of estrogen, progesterone, um, obviously some of them are going to be there naturally, like with myself, because you're younger and you just have higher levels. But looking at modulating some of those may be a useful thing for the future. Mm -hmm. So if I have inflammation, 
what uh, what can I do to ease it and prevent it for any any further damage? So first, my first thing is always going to be really basic: eat more fruit and vegetables <laughs> because that's really one of the biggest things. You know, wow. our beneficial bacteria are so important at reducing inflammation with some of the molecules they make, and you know, it's just really not rocket science and very basic but again it's also varying the fruit and vegetables and it obviously depends what is actually happening with you do you have some sort of disease state um there's been some really interesting studies and i wrote a lot about this i did some research about this uh, last year with curcumin which is active ingredient turmeric so turmeric is obviously the in ingredient of 2018 mm. or 17 but you do need to eat a lot of turmeric um for it to have an effect um, so, but if you do have inflammation, so if you have something like osteoarthritis or one of those kind of diseases, 600 milligrams of, ter- of curcumin can help to reduce that. And they're actually using it in conjunction with some treatment for bowel cancer at the moment and other bowel diseases. So that I find that really interesting. It's, you know, they're giving that as a supplement to people with bowel diseases and bowel cancer with, along with their treatment. Otherwise, it's really hard to know, right? Yeah, what it's to really take. hard. And the omega-3 fish oils are always really important, a massive, important and, you know, anti-inflammatory. And I think that there are vegan sources too from plankton. I think we have to, you have to find the one that you, know, you like. If you eat fish or you're okay with it, red krill oil seems to have a better balance of certain omega-3s mm-hmm. um, and it, it seems to be more effective. Again, with the vegan ones, there's so many out there. Just start looking at those good quality ones because I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. Not just our kind of information and heart health, but just all kinds of immune system, things like that. So those are my kind of key ones. Fruit and vegetables, um, eating like curcumin and obviously having uh, omega-3 for, you know, fish oils. Everything else it's going to be unique to what's going on with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think <sighs> vitamin D not always linked to inflammation necessarily, but definitely linked to many disease states. That's another supplement, especially for those of us who live in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, Northern Europe, we do not get, in Northern you know, America too, um, we do not get, the angle of the sun is wrong for us to make vitamin D from October to March. So I always recommend that people take supplement. I take a supplement. Um, what was really interesting for me was last year, I spent seven weeks in Australia, pretty much in the sea all the time and in the sunshine. And I came back and I tested my vitamin D levels and they weren't low. They were, 50, I think, 55 or 60 milligrams, which is, you know, average. But I thought it'd be a lot higher. And then I realized that I actually, because you can only store so much, but also because I was wearing sunscreen all the time. So the thing is, even when we're in the UK in the summer months, we do need 10 to 15, no, I think 15 to 20 minutes without sunscreen in the sun just to make the vitamin D. And we're so obsessed with skin cancer which we should be as well but i think we all need some time outside in the kind of april to october without sunscreen to make the vitamin d so do i need to go to gp to get a vitamin d prescription or just simply no no unless you're very very deficient no you can just go to the uh, pharmacy or health food shop i mean i use better you deluxe 3000 just one spray Mm -hmm. and that's great but again it's just it's a really good preventative thing. So I'm safe to between the months of October to March every single month to keep drinking vitamin D. Everyone needs vitamin D. Everyone. Like literally everyone. Unless you're going to go for a nice hot holiday, but only you can only really store vitamin D for about a month. So last year I was really lucky, but even then I took a supplement. Um, this year, I don't think I'm going to get to go anywhere, Sunny. So I will, I'm like taking a supplement. 
let's let's go now to something else, which is um, your personal emotional experience and your family experience. So, can you share with us what it was like to share cancer experience with your mom? Absolutely. I think that when my mom had breast cancer, I was at medical school and I was already really interested in cancer. So I, I probably knew more than the average person. And um, it was quite frightening, actually, because I was terrified my mom was going to die, um, which I think is natural for any child. Um, and also understanding the treatments and how severe they were going to be. And that was scary. But once I kind of got more involved with going to all the hospital appointments, doctor was asking a lot of questions that my mum's doctors don't love me. They do not love me because I came with, like every time we had an appointment with some sort of research paper, but why are we not doing this? Why are we not doing this? Why don't we do this? And what about this? And they were probably a bit like, oh my God, where are you finding these obscure papers? I'm like, in the university library. Um, but it did give me some sort of control and felt like I was actually contributing. Um, my, and that was when I started really getting into nutrition, especially for, you know, cancer prevention and, and things like that. And I'd, you know, I made this list and I found it the other day of all the things I gave my mum to eat. And bless her, she ate every single last thing. There was like whole garlic cloves and wheatgrass and licorice sticks and all sorts of crazy supplements. And it was ridiculous, like absolutely ridiculous because actually a lot of them didn't have, you know, necessary. They did have evidence because I looked at all the research papers before I did, but they weren't necessarily the right things for her. She probably didn't need them. Um, some of the supplements certainly, you know, some people think taking high dose of vitamins is useful um, when you're having cancer treatment. Actually, it can actually mean that your chemotherapy does not work because it's interacting with it. So don't take, you know, high dose of vitamins. So I think it was a really great learning process, and I it just really inspired me to take a little bit more interest, and that's why you know, kind of left that part of medicine and went into more into research and then obviously more into nutritional medicine. Um, I think when I had breast cancer myself, I felt very well equipped with knowledge because I'd pretty much finished my master's by then. Um, I just had the thesis and I think one module to do. And I understood a lot of the science based on how cancer developed and what we need to do. I also understood that, you know, I had a, a mixture of stage zero and stage one cancer. So it wasn't I was never going to die. You know, it was all better of more the um, aesthetic. So for me, as a young woman, finding out I need to have a mastectomy because the growth of the breast cancer was was big. The tumour itself was between sort of 16 and 9 centimetres. Like, you know, so it was big. So it was a whole of my breast. It just meant there was no other way other than having a mastectomy. And for me, losing a breast was emotionally really hard. And my mum said that for her she didn't find it as hard because she'd already had children and she was married and she and she doesn't have a reconstruction. Well, for me, I was just obsessed with A, not having it done and then finding the right plastic surgeon and then not like seeing what kind of breasts they could give me. And it, you know, I literally went round in circles um, thinking about it. And I think that was emotionally really hard. And actually, in hindsight, it's been fine. I mean, I think, you know, you get used to your body the way it is. Um, I don't necessarily, I mean, I, I don't sit there and think about it that much anymore and I don't, even with having a romantic relationship, you know, with a man, like, it's always that thing, or when do I tell someone? But I'm like, you know what, it's fine. The, most of the nice guys are great about it, or they don't even notice. Men are not that observant sometimes. Um, <laughs> Despite and, how much aesthetically... Yes, exactly. So, yeah, I, you know, and so I think that was hard for me. And also, at that point, none of my friends had been through, hardly any of my friends had been through anything as big as this. So they didn't know how to support me because I didn't know what I needed. And it wasn't because they didn't try, it's because I didn't know what I needed, what kind of support I needed. And so I'd get really upset. And 
when I was diagnosed with my reoccurrence this time, I was starting to get a bit upset like that again. And one of my very good family friends reminded me. She goes, oh, do you remember last time you just got really upset because people weren't helping you and supporting you, but actually you didn't know what you needed. Mm. So have a think first. And then you can ask particular people for things or just say, guys, I need this. Is anyone able to help me? And we can help you. And obviously not everyone's going to be able to do it because especially now, you know, a lot of my friends have young children, really busy careers, you know, all sorts of things. And I think it's about remembering that People care about you, but they only have so much capacity. And we live in a really busy world. The first time around, no one had smartphones. In fact, I don't even think the iPhone hadn't even been invented. So, you know, 2006, there was no iPhones, and we were constantly being bombarded with, with information. In fact, I didn't even have a, a phone that did email then. So it was really easy. People had a bit more time, they had, you know, less distraction. Now everyone's just very busy. They're constantly switched on. Um, I met my friends, obviously, all, a lot of them are married and have children and stuff, you know, the male and female ones, so they have just a little bit less time. People live all over London. It's hard. But when you have fewer expectations, the people that are there for you are actually never the people that you expect to be there for you. Because if you have higher expectations, they can't fulfill those expectations. So I think it's about having more compassion for yourself and also having compassion for others and their capacity. And not everyone can be there for you. And so for me, I've had some amazing friends who have, just stepped up in a way that I never even imagined. And on other people who would have liked to be there, but just had their own things going on. Mm -hmm. And it's about remembering. And I think with some people, they don't have that much going on, but they just are a bit self-absorbed. And you just know, you know, you don't necessarily need those friendships. And you just have to not cut those people off because they're perfectly nice people and there's nothing wrong with them. Just for me, it's like, I'm not going to choose to prioritize them because they hadn't choose to even ask me how I was doing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. No That's problem. very useful. Do you reckon there is a checklist that people could sort of, mental checklist they could, they could keep about what do I need to do? How do I approach if my friend, not necessarily a family member, gets diagnosed? Wow, I haven't really thought about that. But I think the first thing is to be honest, whatever you're... But, but be also be conscious of the person. So one of the things that's been helpful for me is when people have said to me, Toral, we really care about you. We love you. We're a little bit scared, but we really want to help you be there for you. And they're honest about it. And then mm -hmm. I say, well, actually, you could do this or you could do this. Or, or, you know, or they ask me, how's the treatment going? Or what's actually happening? So today I got a, a nice message from my cousin saying, so what is actually happening now with your treatment? I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know. And I haven't replied to her yet, but I will. Mm -hmm. um, and I think everyone's different. Like some people want to just put their head down and just get on with it. People like me are happy to talk about it. You know, so I shared quite a lot on Instagram and Facebook when I was first diagnosed, I first had surgery again and things like that. And then I've been a bit quiet the last few months, partly because we haven't made a decision on the treatment and partly because it's been Christmas. Um, so I think it's very individual. I think some people, there's some really good resources. So I know with breast cancer, Liz O'Riordan, who's on Instagram as well, she's an amazing breast cancer surgeon who's had breast cancer twice herself, phenomenal book. Um, and then, you know, Bow Babe's written, you know, Deborah's written a really great book about, you know, and I can't say the word because it's a rude word. Um, but it's, her book's great. And there's so many other good books, Chris Carr, there's a bunch of people. But I, for me, it's about just having people ask, I think, the question. Because sometimes you don't need anything, you just need people to know that they're thinking about you and they care about you and that's it, really. And, you know, it always just come and visit. difference. Sorry? It makes such a huge difference when huge. you know that people care about you. But on the other hand, it's hard for you, probably, I would assume, it's hard to even ask for help. Yeah, I think everyone thinks I'm coming across as really strongly. So I've had to be, I think I have shared more on social media this time about some of the vulnerabilities because 
then people can understand where I'm at. Um, and sometimes I don't know what I need either. And I think that I'm quite a pragmatic person. I quite, I'm just used to getting on with it. So even with my best friend, we had a bit of an argument because he wanted me to host a Christmas dinner mm-hmm. and I wasn't up to it. And they, you know, and I kind of was annoyed because he kind of suggested it in our kind of group of friends and I was a bit like, but you didn't ask me first. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just being conscious and just finding out. And I think this applies to all of life. We don't know where anyone's at at any given moment in time. So just ask the question, how are you doing? What's going on? Be curious about other people. And for me, that's really important. It's something that I was, you know, instilled in me from doing loads of personal development and doing Aikido. It's just really try and be there with the other person. And then it's easy. And you know what? We don't always know what to do or say. It's fine. Don't worry about it too much. The fact that you are being authentic and being honest and vulnerable will count for so much more than knowing what the right thing is to do or say. Oh, that's wonderful. That's really, really useful. Thank you. For sure. All right. So... The, one of the last question is, Coral, <laughs> what fuels your wings these days and what's cooking for you in 2019? So my mantra is always I want people, including myself, to be happier, happy and healthy. Mm-hmm. So everything I do is really with that in mind. Um, and what fuels me is I want to give people techniques and tips and help So they don't have to go through some of the stuff I've been through or some of the stuff my mum's been through or friends and family have been through or just things to help them to be less stressed and to eat better and feel happier. Um, Mental health, we're learning now, is so involved with our gut health, um, what we eat. And I think that's a really big thing. So I'm very conscious of that, you know, exercises too. So for me, it's about how can I help make these choices and, and inspire people by what I'm doing. I'm certainly not perfect. Like I could do it losing a little bit of weight at the moment. That's fine. But the whole point is that how do we share what things make a difference to us? So for me, I know that when I do some meal prep or I share recipes or share some of the nutrition or why you want to eat things, people like that. And you know, I want people to tell me what they're interested in. Um, so those are the things that kind of fuel me. And also just When you get those emails or you get those messages on Instagram saying, oh, I did this because you suggested I feel this different. That makes me really happy. Mm. Um, I'm a real people pleaser. I'm, I'm not going to try to pretend I'm not. So for me, that's really important. And, and I really care about people and I like to nurture people, which is why, you know, even at age 11, I was like, right, I need to go into cancer. I need to help people. It was either cancer or AIDS by the end, but obviously by the time I got to medical school, AIDS wasn't such a problem um, and cancer was. So those are, I think that's what fuels me. As far as what's cooking for 2019, lots of fun things. So um, there are a lot of really cool collaborations coming up, which is very exciting. I can't mention some of them yet, but one of the ones I can mention is I'm doing a series of events with uh, a journalist, a health journalist called Amy Abrahams, and we are opening up a conversation about what's the health? What is health anyway? And they're all going to be themed and really looking at emotional, physical, and mental health and the evidence behind them and how we can support them, how we can create our own health manifesto, really get those conversations going about things like body shape and body dysmorphia and um, envy and comparison and mental health and motherhood and working stress and how do we deal with those and how does that impact our health? And, you know, what is health? Does it have to look a certain way? I think we've been sold something where it's all about 25-year-old blondes. And I'm sorry if you're 25 and blonde and listening to this. Um, you know, and they're the only ones that can be into health and wellness. And actually, it's important for everybody. And it doesn't look the same for everybody. I think 
we have to remember that it's not about being able to do like stretch your body into crazy yoga positions or like you know lift loads of weights but it's about how to find the right thing that's right for each person at that stage in their life because things change like a load of my friends went into lots of different types of exercise it all changed when they became mothers or even fathers because their time was limited mm -hmm. also they couldn't go and put themselves first and be like right i'm going to the gym every morning they're also exhausted because they weren't getting sleep so it's really about you know, those things. Um, I have some really cool supper clubs coming up. I'm doing some work with the Royal Marsden, which is very exciting. There's already some recipes up already. So have a look at their website. Um, there are lots of public speaking and talks about lots of things. And I'm also pursuing more functional and lifestyle medicine. So I am deep diving into uh, a lot more research and I'm doing a course at the moment, which is very exciting and, and mostly in the United States. And looking at how hormones affect our health. I'm also partnering up again with my one of my old, old, old friends and colleagues, um, Dr. Natasha Patel. Actually, she's Miss, Mrs. Um, who is a diabetes consultant. And we, uh, in 2004, five and six, we pioneered some amazing diabetes workshops. Um, and we are doing a lot more of that, but updated for the latest evidence and a lot of gut health work. So yeah, all sorts of good That's things. That's brilliant. So you're spreading your wings and you're living your purpose by the sound of it. Absolutely, absolutely am. That's and also at some point I need to fit in some extra cancer treatment. I don't know when that's happening, <laughs> but you know, we'll figure that out as we go along. I mean, last time when I had breast cancer the first time I did a triathlon, London triathlon through the, you know, I was trained for it and I, uh, yeah, through the surgery. So I'm sure this time I'll be more work related stuff, but we're going to keep going because I think if I can help inspire just one person each day to make a difference to their health and well-being, it's all worth it. It's all worth going through it myself if I can help it make a that difference. That is so great that there are people like you. You gave me so many useful tips that I'm going to definitely implement. Thanks Thank so much you. for well, sharing. Well, I want to hear back which ones you did. I'll be, I'll be chasing you. Don't worry. Vitamin <laughs> <laughs> D. Vitamin <laughs> D for sure. Well, actually, I'm planning to start... Um, wild swimming in Hampstead Ladies Pond. Yes, and I'm going so. to come with you, aren't I? Yes, I'm going to come up to side, but maybe not <laughs> when it's quite that. so cold. Oh, because well. there's no wetsuits allowed, is there? No, but you can do that. I'm yeah, planning just, just bikini. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Might have to wear a swimsuit, but yeah, I think I can do that. <laughs> Toro, where people can find you if they want to connect, see what you're cooking, the recipes they can steal from you, or simply want to talk about their health? So lots of different ways. I have a website. It's www.theurbankitchen.co.uk. I run lots of interactive workshops. There's lots of recipes and blog posts on there. Um, also, I'm on social media on Instagram at The Urban Kitchen and Twitter at Urban Kitchen and Facebook. It's Urban Kitchen London. So come and find me there. There's always recipes. There's always ideas about food. There's nutrition tips health tips, all sorts of bits and pieces. Uh, and also all our events will be up there too, including What the Health. So come and have a look. Brilliant, we will. I'll share everything in the show notes. Thank you again for being on the Ego Podcast and have a wonderful and healthy 2019. Thank you so much and you too. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Eagle Podcast. I hope you picked up a few useful tips in this episode and you will incorporate into your well-being. Toril and I would love to hear from you, so head over to the Facebook group called The Eagle Collective and ask or comment away. All the show notes are at www.sandradonskita.com forward slash The Eagle Podcast. For now, have a great week with lots of good food, fresh air, a happy dance. Why not? <laughs> <laughs>